This dynamic message is brought to you by Redemption in Jesus with Marco Bravo. Amen. Praise God. Praise God. All right. So here is the title of our series that we are starting today. And it is titled, Jesus, Our Refuge. And this is part one. And so, praise God. I trust that you are going to be blessed and you are going to enjoy it. And today we are going to look at the Old Covenant Cities of Refuge. So that subtitle, the part one title, already gives you a bit of a clue as to where we're going to, uh, to establish the foundation. All right, so praise God. Now, <clears throat> you know, when we think about refuge, and I know we can associate it to different things. I mean, there's, there are churches who have that name. There are places that, you know, are Christian-based places that do different kinds of ministries that call themselves, that use that word refuge in their name. But we all know what it means. You know, when you seek for refuge, it's because something's happening to you. You're running from something. Someone is chasing you. Someone is trying to harm you, maybe even kill you. And so you look for a place of refuge where you can find shelter, you can find safety, you can find security, you can find provision, you can find comfort. And so when we think about all those things, that's exactly what Jesus is to us. Now you may say, well, that's a no-brainer. We know that. Yes, but let's see it in the Word. Let's see how the types and shadows of the Old Covenant show us how Jesus is our refuge. Now you may say, well, I know that intellectually, and you know, in my experience, and I'm talking about myself too, but oftentimes we say, yes, Jesus is my refuge. I know that He's my refuge. But when things happen, when things are happening to us, when life is happening, when this fallen world and fallen people influenced, you know, whether it's by carnality or, or evil forces, when they start coming for us, attacking us and trying to destroy us, where do we run to? Who do we run to? What do we run to? Do we run to pills? Do we run to you know, and I'm not saying these things are not to be taken, but what I'm saying is they shouldn't be the primary place of refuge. But do we run to therapy? Do we run to psychology? Do we run to food, eating? Do we run to habits? Do we run to, you know, narcotics? Do we run to, I don't know, <laughs> where do we run to? Do we run to, where do we run when we feel like we need a place of refuge? That generally is a sign of where we are as far as believing that Jesus is our refuge. Now, I don't want anyone to f receive any guilt, shame, or condemnation here, but I need to say this to help us all, to help me. When things happen, when life happens, as we say, and we need a place of refuge, when anxiety hits you, when depression hits you, when bad news hits you, where do you run for refuge? Are you going to let that harm you and try and destroy you? Or where will you go for refuge? You see, we all need to be reminded that Jesus is our refuge. He can be and He is. And He's given us the freedom. You know, through the finished work of the cross, He has made Himself and what He did for us available as a place of refuge, if you will, where we can go to Him for refuge. 
And so we're going to dig into all of that in the series. We're going to look at it. We're going to look at it from every angle. And we're going to receive the heart of God for that. And you know, there's a beautiful thing that we see in the gospel. As far as when people are seeking refuge, God never, ever turns anyone away. Now, religion may tell you that He does. Legalistic doctrine will tell you that He does. But gospel truth tells us differently. The gospel tells us that He does not. This is why He provides for us refuge. He commits Himself to be our refuge. And He also, as we will see today, gives us old covenant types and shadows to show us how in Jesus we have a place of refuge. Amen. You know, there's all kinds of teaching out there, all kinds of legalistic interpretations and misinterpretations of Scripture. And I'm not saying we've got it all, but I'd like to think that we've at least taken off. And so, you know, but all kinds of, that will, all kinds of doctrines that will tell you, you know, that if you do this and that, you lose fellowship with God. You, lose, you risk losing your salvation. And, you know, if you don't do this, this, this and that, then curses come on you and God does this to you and that kind of thing. And that is definitely not the heart of God. That's mixing law with grace. That's mixing old covenant way of relating to God with new covenant way of relating to God. God never intended for us to take the old and the new covenant way of relating to Him and make a mixture out of the two with a new way mixed of relating to Him. No, in Hebrews he says clearly, the old way of relating to God came to an end at the cross and the new way began at the cross. So we don't relate to God by law anymore. Now I'm not saying we're against the law. We love the law. We embrace the law for the reasons God gave it to us. But we are to relate to Him by His grace, by His unmerited favor. It's a totally different way of relating to God. Amen. And so that's His heart. And because of that, we know that God never turns us away when we run to Him for refuge. Even when we've messed up and we feel like we've sinned against Him. Even especially when we feel like we've done something that He would not approve of. Something that we know is not His heart. Even then we can run to Him for refuge. And we should run to Him for refuge. Amen. So let's begin by looking at Hebrews chapter 6, verses 16 to 18. Now we've touched on this on Wednesday, our midweek Bible study. But I want to expand on this. Um, and so this could be easily be a supplement to that portion right there. But let's have a look at it so we can see what we are talking about when we talk about refuge. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 16 to 18, right there. It says, now when people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. And without any question, the oath is binding. God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise, watch this, could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. So God has given both His promise and His oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, watch us, here it is. We who have fled to Him for refuge 
can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. Now let me show you some things here while we have it there. Notice there real clearly, it says that when people make an oath, when they make a vow that they're going to live up to something, it says without question they are bound to it. Now you and I both know people can let us down. People can break their word. But God doesn't. And this is why it says here, because we understand the concept of making an oath, making a vow, it says God Himself has made an oath. In other words, He has made a vow and He, is, he has locked Himself into that vow. And He says, so that, so He did it for our purpose, so that we who receive the promise, we can be perfectly sure. So God didn't enter into an oath or make an oath for His sake. He did it for us to show us and give us certainty so that we can be sure. And so we have not only His promise, but also the oath that He will keep His promise, that He will fulfill His promise. And it's those two things that it says that are unchangeable because God cannot lie. You know, some people say God can do anything. No, He can't. He cannot lie. He's never going to do that. And so, then as a result of all that, it says, Therefore, we, can, we who have fled to Him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. So, the whole basis of this whole portion here is basically to make that point that we've seen at the end of verse 18. We have His promise. He made an oath to keep His promise. He's bound Himself to it. He cannot lie. And because of that, it is unchanging. And because of that, we can have confidence in the hope that we have in Jesus. So we can flee to Him. It says, we who have fled. In other words, when you receive salvation in Jesus, you've entered this place of refuge. But also throughout our Christian life, we can keep going reminding ourselves that we are in this place of refuge, that we are in Jesus. Amen. And so it's important for us to understand and not miss on that, on that actual context of what this is saying. You know, the basis of us having Jesus as our refuge is not on the basis of what we do, what we don't do, our merit, our performance, in other words. No, it's on the basis of what He has done for you and I, what God has done for us in and through Jesus. God made a promise, and that would have been enough. But then to make sure that we have certainty in the promise, He then made an oath, a vow, to let us know that I will keep my promise. I will fulfill my promise. And it's never going to change. I don't lie. And therefore, because of that, you can be certain that as you've entered refuge in Jesus, you can be certain and confident that, that that's exactly what you will have. And that's your hope. And you can hang on to it. Amen. And so it's pretty powerful here. Now, remember I said to you that God took an oath for our sake, not His. Because He doesn't need to convince Himself. Just like we humans, you know, when we want to convince someone. Like, for example, when we decide to marry someone, when I decided to marry Helena... You know, we could have just said, you know, let's just declare ourselves married right here. And I'm not making fun of anyone, but it's, it's a habit. But, you know, let's just do it right here. Let's just, before God. No, we chose to go to a church, to have a service, a ceremony, sign, you know, make it legal and all that. 
Why did we do that? We did that. We already loved each other. We were already committed to each other. We already knew that we wanted to be with each other for the rest of our lives. But we went and we did all that. In other words, make an oath. We made, went and made a vow. Why? So that we can have absolute confidence of our commitment to each other. And I mean, that's just human. That's, and, and you know, I can tell you, I'm sure she will tell you and I can tell you, there's times because we people, we still live in this fallen body, there's times where we probably both thought twice about our commitment and our vow, but we know ultimately it's just a moment thing and we continue and we will continue. But we are people. How much more will God do? He is perfect. And so he didn't need to make a vow because a promise would have been enough. But he made a vow to keep his promise. Why? For our sake, for you and I, so that we can have confidence in his promise. And what was his promise? You flee to him for refuge. You can have confidence and hold on to that hope. That's the essence of what that's saying to us there. And so the fulfillment of his promise, as you can see and as we've discussed, is not on the basis of our merit or our performance. It is based on God's character and God's integrity. We can have confidence that God will fulfill His promise, His promises, if you will, because of the oath that He made to Himself. In other words, I'm putting my integrity on the line. I'm putting my character on the line to let you know how committed I am for you to enjoy my promise. And in context specifically, it talks about so when you find refuge in that promise, in His promises, you can be certain of that hope. Amen. And so because of that, we are entitled to take refuge in Him and have great confidence. Now remember, the greater context of that is, is that He's talking about having received salvation in Jesus. And so He is our refuge. Jesus is our refuge. That's what He's saying in essence. But now... Having said that and basically understanding that, the concept and all that, we need to ask the question, why does it say, have fled to Him for refuge? Why didn't it say something else? Why couldn't it have just said, you know, you who have found Jesus, you can now have confidence in that hope and be in that hope? Or, you know, just worded it some other way. Why did the author of Hebrews, inspired by God, why did he say, have fled to Him for refuge. Because if you think about it, the term itself paints a picture of one who is in a hopeless state, running from those who are trying to harm Him and even kill Him. That's when you run for refuge. You run for refuge when you have something behind you that is out to get you and destroy you and kill you. And so when you think about it in concept, in terms of the gospel, we could say, well, yes, in fallen Adam, because we're all his descendants, and so, you know, we are fallen because he's fallen, and so we all have the sin issue between us and God before the cross and before receiving salvation in Jesus. And so it does typify that, and it does talk about that, but it's also talking about this life. It is talking about we, you know, who, when we find ourselves in a hopeless state, when we find ourselves like everything is chasing us, we can run to Him for refuge. And so, but there obviously is more to that, to, to that term than just what He said right there. Because remember, Hebrews is written to a Hebrew audience primarily. It is Jews who were living outside of Israel 
in a small community, most of them had received salvation in Jesus. And so he's reminding them, referring to Old Testament terminology and types and shadows. And he's reminding them, you know, he's painting the picture of what it means to flee to God for refuge. So it behooves us as new covenant believers, people from the Western world, as we say, people who are not from those times, who don't fully comprehend those things. It behooves us to understand where he got that term from and what it means and what it looks like, because then we'll have the full picture of what it means for us as new covenant believers to have run to him for refuge and have that hope in Jesus. Amen. Well, it's a well-known term, uh, or should I say it's a well-known old covenant term. And it is used to refer to the cities of refuge. Now, we may be somewhat familiar, but I assure you, we're going to dig in a lot more than what we've ever, what we've ever done in the past. But this term is in reference to what was known in the Old Covenant. In actual fact, when God gave the law to the people of Israel, He actually included these cities of refuge in there, and He told them why they were to exist and what their purpose was. They were cities of refuge. But refuge from what and why? And so we're going to look at that. Now, to understand that and to just give you the background so we understand better what we're about to read from Scripture, I want to remind you of a few things. First of all, remember, as far as the children of Israel goes, they were in bondage in Egypt. They were made, turned into slaves, basically. And so God eventually delivered them from that Egyptian bondage. And then he led them toward the promised land. So he had made a promise to Abraham, remember their ancestor, way back. And so he made a promise to them that they would conquer this land, that they would live in this land. And so he leads them back to the promised land after taking them out of bondage. And so let me show you a slide of what that promised land looks like. So here's the uh, holy land, as we call it today. This is the promised land right there. And I know that it's small. And so hopefully you have a screen that you can see. But don't worry, I'll fill in the details and explain it to you. But in essence, there you see the Mediterranean Sea. And in the middle of the land, you see the Dead Sea. And then you see the Sea of Galilee above that on top. And then running between them, you see the Jordan River. And then right there, that's basically the Promised Land. That's where the 12 tribes of Israel were to settle, and that was the fulfillment of the promise God made to Abraham that they would live in that land. And so that's in essence the promised land that we see right there. What happened is, is that they conquered the promised land, and they didn't con conquer it all at one time. They conquered it, the, the bulk of it. They con conquered what they needed, and then God led them to continue conquering it as time went by. But eventually they did. And so they conquered the promised land, and it was then distributed to the 12 tribes of Israel, which was there on the map, but I'm going to make it a little clearer for you. So here it is here. <clears throat> this is more or less how it was distributed amongst the 12 tribes. So you'll see that we have a uh, purple highlighter, and we've highlighted the names of the tribes which were on the first map. And so... You don't have to worry about the names or anything specifically, but this shows you how they were scattered across the promised land and to whom which regions and areas were given to. 
So pay close attention to that because these cities of refuge come into play in this uh, dispersion, this distribution of the land and where each tribe ended up being. Okay, so that gives you the idea of where the tribes were in the promised land and how it was all distributed and given to them. Okay, and so what happens is that once that allocation of land happened, then eventually God reminded Joshua, because remember it was Joshua who led them into conquering the promised land. So God reminds Joshua about establishing these cities of refuge. Now, he had already told, God that is, he had already told Moses and given the instructions to Moses about these cities of refuge. And we're not going to read it here today, but I'll give you the reference so you can go look it up if you'd like. In Exodus 35 verses 1 to 34 is where we see God giving Moses instructions when they enter the promised land, when they conquer it. And he specifically puts a whole portion, gives him a whole uh, lot of instruction about these cities of refuge. So Moses wrote it down. Moses already had it together. And so then Moses, as you know, died. And so Joshua took leader, over the leadership, the leadership role from him. And so this is why God now, as they enter the promised land and Joshua led them into the victory, now God says, okay, you've distributed the land. The tribes all have, have their allocations. They're all going to go there. But I want to remind you, Joshua, don't forget the cities of refuge. Now remember, this is all type and shadow for you and I in Jesus. So as you listen to this, as we study this, remind yourself that this is a type and shadow for you and me. So they go in and so that's what Joshua does. And that's in essence what we're going to see. We're going to read Joshua chapter 20, the whole chapter. There's nine verses in there where, is, where God speaks to Joshua, talking to him about these cities of refuge. And so let's pick up the account in verse 1 of Joshua 20. Verse 1 and 2 first. <clears throat> it says, The Lord said to Joshua, Now tell the Israelites, watch this, to designate the cities of refuge, as I instructed Moses. So in essence, God says to Joshua, don't forget, Joshua, now that you've allocated the land, you need to set up the cities of refuge. Now, when you ask yourself refuge, refuge means someone is running away from something, running away from someone that's trying to kill them, trying to harm them. So why set up a whole city for those running from someone? I mean, maybe they did wrong. Maybe they were in the wrong. Why does God want to provide a specific city? Think about our city here in San Antonio. We have around 2 million people in the city and it just keeps growing. And imagine that this, you know, God said, say, uh, uh, allocate San Antonio to be a city of refuge. And, you know, most of us will be like, mm, when we consider, you know, where our world is and our political system and other things going on, we'll probably be like, no, let's have a vote. We're going to vote against that. Because when we think about refuge, we think about not good things necessarily, specifically when it comes to people. You know, do we really want to be a city of refuge? Who's going to come here? It could be criminals. It could be people that have done bad things. Do we want them in our city, in our community? But yet God here specifically gave specific instructions under the law, remember, to Moses. And now 
that have conquered it and have allocated the land, God reminds Joshua and he says, Joshua, don't forget the cities of refuge. Clearly, this was something important. Why? Because it's a type and shadow for us too. But for them, it was a whole lot of work. It was establishing a community and a whole city for this purpose, for the purpose of taking in refugees. Because that's someone who takes, you know, seeking refuge is a refugee. And so, okay, well, let's have a look at the meaning of that word refuge. And I'm going to show it to you from the Webster's 1828 Dictionary. Now, remember, this was the last version that was Bible-based. After that, the Webster's Dictionary became secular like most dictionaries we have today and so that's why we're looking at the 1828 version so here it is yeah the meaning of refuge firstly it says it means shelter or protection from danger or distress secondly it means that which shelters or protects from danger distress or calamity a stronghold which protects by its strength or a sanctuary which secures safety by its sacredness. Any place inaccessible to any, to an enemy, I'm sorry. And then thirdly, it means an expedient to secure protection or defense. Or you could say a means to secure protection or defense. And then it has a note within the meaning. And it says, Cities of refuge among the Israelites, certain cities appointed to secure the safety. Here it is. Yeah, we're going to see the clue here. The safety of such persons as might commit homicide without design. Of these, there were three on each side of Jordan. And then it cites to Joshua 20. You can see why I use the Webster's 1828. Because the modern Webster's takes all of that out and changes that completely. It's very sad. But this is Bible-based because that's what it means. And so you can see, and then of course, lastly, we forgot about the last line there. It says, refuge to shelter to protect. That's the basic meaning of that word. But there they, it gave us a breakdown. All right, so now that we understand that and it's given us a bit of a clue what that is, in other words, what we see so far, this is that when God said to Joshua, build cities of refuge, what he was saying to him, and I'm going to put it in my own words and you'll see as we go along. He was saying to him, there are going to be people who are accidentally or unintentionally going to be the cause of someone's death. In other words, they're either going to kill them by mistake or they're going to kill them without intention. And these cities of refuge is for them. They need to have a place to go. Because you think about it. If someone harmed and killed someone in someone's family, that family is going to be mad. They're going to want justice. And in those days, they would chase after that person and they would kill that person. Because according to the law, that's what they were meant to do. Someone who murdered someone, they had to be put to death. And so... This is why God provides these places. But notice the key here. It was for those who unintentionally committed homicide. So let's continue now reading from verse 3 of Joshua 20. Then he says, Anyone who kills another person, here it is here, accidentally and unintentionally can run to one of these cities. They will be places of 
refuge from relatives seeking revenge for the person who has killed. So right there, what the Webster just told us, this is where they got it from, and it shows us. These cities were not designed to provide refuge for those who had intentionally murdered someone else. They were cities, they were places that would provide refuge for someone who had unintentionally caused the death of another. In other words, let me put it this way, and you know, it's a play of words, so just listen carefully so you don't misunderstand me. These cities of refuge were not for intentional murderers. That's what I'm saying. And God made it clear there. In other words, well, what's the difference? Let me put it this way. It was for those who had slayed someone. In other words, manslaughter. So it wasn't for the murderer. It was for the manslaughter, if you will. Okay. What's the difference? Well, murder is the unlawful premeditated killing of another. Whereas manslaughter is the unlawful non-premeditated killing of another. So yes, they both ended up killing someone, but one did it on purpose. He did it intentionally or she did it intentionally. The other didn't. It was by accident. It was unintentional. And it was for those people whom it was for. So the one was intentional. The other was not, basically. It's what it's telling us. And in actual fact, if we go back to Deuteronomy, where you know the instruction was being given about these cities and who could be going there and all of that, uh, in Deuteronomy 19 verse 5, it actually explains it to us a little bit more, where God says this, watch this now. It says, for example, suppose someone, so he's explaining about the city of refuge and who could go in there. He says, for example, suppose someone who goes into the forest with a neighbor to cut wood. And suppose one of them swings an axe to chop down a tree and the axe head flies off the handle, killing the other person. In such cases, the slayer may flee to one of the cities of refuge to live in safety. So right there, God gives an example of what the purpose of these cities were and who could go there. So it wasn't for those who intentionally committed sin, who intentionally did wrong. It was for those who had unintentionally done it. And I mean, in Adam, in fallen Adam, we're all, we're all in that category, aren't we? You know, praise God. But anyway, praise God for redeeming us is what I mean. So we see here so far that God's law allowed for unintentional killers, not intentional killers, to be the ones who could go into a city of refuge. The intentional killers, according to Exodus 21, and that's something I recommend also you read or listen to, but according to Exodus 21, the intentional killers were to be put to death under the law. And so, again, we just need to make sure we understand who the city was for. And so these cities were not meant for those who had willfully killed or sinned. These cities were not places where wrong or sinfulness would be excused or allowed to go on. That's something we need to understand, which gives us an understanding of the grace of God as new covenant believers. You know, these places were not for those who were intentionally, who had intentionally sinned and were intentionally living in sin. That's not who these places were for. These places of refuge were for those 
who <laughs> didn't know better, who mistakenly did this. Now, this is all a type and shadow, which we'll cover again in this series. And so, praise God for these wonderful places, because what would happen is, is that this person who had unintentionally killed someone, they would go there, a place of refuge, meaning that there would be guaranteed protection, security, and provision. And while they were there, they were also put on trial. Evidence was brought forth to make sure that that's exactly what happened, that they had done this unintentionally. And then they would be allowed to stay there for a time, or if they wanted to stay there permanently, they could. But it was essentially for a time. They could stay there and, get, and receive restoration. They would be allowed to just, you know, a transformation would take place. And also, they would be given a second chance, as you're about to see. So, there were places that would help them. Amen. And so, let's continue now with Joshua 20, and we're going to read verses 4 through 6. It says there, now it's continuing, remember this. Upon reaching one of these cities, the one who caused the death will appear before the elders at the city gate and present his case. They must allow him to enter the city and give him a place to live among them. Now watch this. If the relatives of the victim come to avenge the killing, the leaders must not release the slayer to them, for he killed the, the other person unintentionally and without previous hostility. Verse 6. But the slayer must stay in that, in the, in that city and be tried by the local assembly, which will render a judgment, and he must continue to live in that city until the death of the high priest, who was in office at the time of the accident. After that, he is free to return to his own home in the town from which he fled. Alright, so this is now the instruction of the law that God is reminding Joshua, and he's also just making sure that Joshua himself understands so that because he's the one now that's going to, you know, be the one who leads the building of these cities and the purpose of these cities and establishing these cities. And so God's making sure here that Joshua himself understands completely and absolutely what this is for. And so that paints a very clear picture to us. And so you see here that this is all based on the law because they were living under the law. And so God's law required that the relatives of the victim avenge the killing of their relative by putting the one who was the cause of his or, his or her death to death. This is why they would pursue that person. This is why that person needed a place of refuge. Now again, I'm going to run a little bit ahead of myself here. But think about us. Before we received salvation in Jesus, who was chasing us? The law was chasing us. Reminding us of our sin, reminding us of our guilt, shame and condemnation, reminding us of how we fall short, how we don't measure up. And it was out to destroy us and kill us because it made us, it, it, you know, it made us feel like someone who had killed someone. Why? Because we didn't live up to God's perfect standard. And so in the same way, we needed, we were running, we needed a place of refuge. And we found it in Jesus. And this is all a type and shadow of Jesus, just painting the picture for us of how graceful and loving our God is. In Jesus, God is out to redeem us, to restore us, to give us another chance. Amen. 
unlike religion and legalistic teaching, you know, that says, no, there's a certain place you reach and that's it, it's done. Well, <laughs> that's not what we see here. But now, notice it says there that the high priest who was in office when the incident happened, when he died, then the person who was living in the city of refuge, who had fled there for refuge, that person then was also released from the city. Now, they could stay there if they wanted to, but they could go back home, if you will. Now, here's the thing. Even though God says it's under the law, you know yourself, not everyone's going to abide by that. So, by leaving that city, they would also place themselves at risk. Because if those relatives are still mad and angry, and they're still looking for that person, well, you know, things could happen to them. And so, let's continue now from in Joshua. We're going to read now verse 7 to 9, to the end. So, in other words, the last three verses there. The following cities, now God's giving him specific names and specific geographical locations of these cities. Okay, And there was going to be six of them, as you'll see. He says, now this is still God speaking to Joshua, remember. The following cities were designated as cities of refuge. And here they are. Kadesh of Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali. Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim. And Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in other words, that's its actual name, in the hill country of Judah. On the east side of the Jordan River, across from Jericho, the following cities were designated. Bezer in the wilderness plain of the tribe of Reuben. Ramoth in Gilead, in the territory of the tribe of Gad. And Golan in Bashan. Interesting. Golan, Golan Heights. There was a city of refuge right there. In the land of the tribe of Manasseh, these cities were set, we're in verse 9 now, right? These cities were set apart for all the Israelites, now watch this, for all the Israelites as well as the foreigners living among them. So this wasn't just for the Jewish people, this was also for the Gentile people living with them. So this was for everyone. Doesn't that sound like redemption in Jesus? It is for everyone, praise God. Then it says here, among them, anyone, watch this, he reminds him again, who accidentally killed another person could take refuge in one of these cities. In this way, they could escape being killed in revenge prior to standing trial before the local assembly. So apparently, they lived in dangerous times. The risk of causing someone's death was a lot more than it may be today. And so, regardless of that, this is all a type and shadow for us in Jesus. And we're going to study that and get into that, and it's going to be tremendous. But So, we, we're establishing the foundation here. We're looking at the basis of this, what, what it means to take refuge in Jesus. Amen. And so, here he outlines the six cities. It started off with the three, and as they conquered the rest, the other three were built on the east side of the Jordan River. That's what we see here. So let me show you that same map that we looked at earlier, but now we're going to see the allocations of these cities of refuge, because I want to point something out to you as we see it just graphically, uh, you know, right there. Okay, so here's the same map again. Now here are the cities of refuge, which are marked in red, and you see the names there, which we've just read. So remember, the purple highlights are how the tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel, 
were, were given and allocated the land in the promised land. Now look at those cities of refuge. It's interesting, isn't it? Let's leave that on for a moment as I tell you some things about that. So you see they're in red, they're marked, and you can see how they are scattered throughout the promised land, throughout where they live, throughout Israel. These cities were given to and occupied by the Levites. That is the priestly tribe. So they were the ones who managed it. They were the ones who were in charge of those cities. So God appointed the priestly tribes to be in those cities, to manage those cities, and to receive those coming to refuge. Interesting. Then, these cities were places of refuge for everyone, for all, as you have seen, Jew and Gentile, who were legally guilty, but not morally guilty. Remember that? And so, no matter where they lived, look at that real carefully. Look how it's spread out. And based on dimensions and based on distances and travel time and all of that in those days, here's what I can tell you from what I have seen. No matter where they lived in the land, within half a day's journey, if they were walking, they could get to a city of refuge. So no matter where they lived in the promised land, within half a day, they could get to a city of refuge. Isn't that powerful? Praise God. Now, looking at that, I mean, it just, it's so awesome to see that. And so awesome to see the heart of our Father. And it's all a type and shadow for us. How accessible is Jesus as our refuge today? Totally accessible, no matter where we are. Amen. But that's God's certainty to assure, us, to assure us. No matter where you are, no matter what it looks like, no matter what the conditions are, you have a place of refuge in Jesus. I guess that's one of the messages that we see in that portion. Amen. All right, so... Let me tell you just a little bit more about those cities as we come to an ending here for our first part, for our foundation. Um, just some random facts about it. These cities of refuge were built on high ground. And so the reason for that was is that so they could be seen and they could be visible from afar. I mean, miles away, you could see where a city of refuge was because they picked the highest point in that region and they built that city on that tip. So anyone <clears throat> looking for anything, looking for a place of refuge, that is, I mean, they would be able to see it from a distance. So, you know, this is all in God's mind. This is all God's plan and purpose. Remember, this was all God's idea. It wasn't their idea. It wasn't them coming up with it. It was God. And there's a reason for that, too, because it's all typifying Jesus. And so they were built on high ground. And then also... These um, cities of refuge, they were like fortresses. I'll show you in a moment. They were like fortresses. And they were built out of much limestone. They used so much limestone in their building. And there was a reason for that. Because there's specific qualities to limestone. Limestone reflects sunlight. And it also reflects the light of the moon. But also, during the day, it, the heat that it takes in, at night, it causes it to glow. In actual fact, if you take a piece of limestone today, and you put it close to heat, and then you go to a dark place, it will glow. And so that's the reason why it was built out of limestone. In other words, during the day, someone 
from a distance looking for a city of refuge, this would glow, this, this structure, this city would glow so that they would know this is where it is. This is God making it so awesomely easily f- to be able to find an, an access. It, and it's just so much of the type of, you know, what we have in Jesus. But anyway, and so at night, the same thing. As they were, remember, they didn't have electricity like we have today. And so at night, as the, someone would be seeking refuge, then the, this structure would reflect the moonlight, but also the, the heat that it had contained during the day would cause it to glow. And so it was a glowing structure, and they would be able to find it easy. I mean, talk about the heart of God. Amen. And so let me show you, before I continue telling you just a few more things about that, let me show you a slide of what a city of refuge looked like. Now, this is something that obviously is thousands of years after the fact, uh, but this is in essence a city of refuge. This is what they looked like. They were, you know, at a high point and they were built predominantly out of limestone and limestone does come in that color too. And so there it is. You can see it had high walls to protect those who came. Remember, these were specifically, strictly for those seeking refuge and the Levites lived there. It's pretty awesome. Anyway, so that's an example right there. Now, you know, when you think about that so far, built in a high place, you know, glows and reflects the sun and the moonlight so it can be seen. Well, now you're going to understand even clearer and better what Jesus said in Matthew 5 verse 14 to the people he was talking to and prophetically to us, New Covenant believers as well. Watch this in Matthew 5 14. Now you're going to understand more what Jesus really meant and what he, was, what he had in mind when he said this. He says, you, that's you, are the light of the world. That's the glowing structure. Watch this. A city that is set on a hill, in other words, a high point, cannot be hidden. Isn't that powerful? So what Jesus was basically saying to you and I as New Covenant believers, and He was saying to them even under the law, He was saying to them, you are going to be the place that is going to be a place of refuge for those around you, who's going to show them and point them to the one who is our ultimate refuge. You are the one who's going to shine and let them know, here is hope, here is refuge, here is transformation, here is restoration, here is a second chance, here is love. And you are not going to, you shouldn't be hidden because you cannot be hidden because the cities of refuge cannot be hidden. In essence, Jesus was giving us His, giving us his heart for us as, new, us as New Covenant believers. He was telling us, don't go around putting people on guilt trips and pounding them with the law and making them feel shame, guilt and condemnation and making them feel like God is angry with them and God has no place for them and now they're doomed. No, He says, you as New Covenant believers need to be cities of refuge. You need to be places where people can find hope, where people can find comfort, where people can find refuge, where people can know you are going to help me transform, change and be given another chance because you are going to point me because that's what those cities did. Those cities pointed to God and His love, His grace and His mercy. And that's what you and I ought to do as New Covenant believers. Amen. Praise God. How powerful is that? But let me just end off with a few more little things about these cities. 
The other wonderful thing that we see as we study this in historical record and you know what uh, Bible historians wrote is, is that the roads leading to these cities were generally wider than the general roads. But also the people, the Levites from these cities had teams of laborers of people who their job was to travel up and down these roads and make sure that they were clean, make sure that they were cleared, that there was no obstruction so that anyone traveling to them would not be hindered in getting there as quick as possible. Whoever was fleeing, they had an easy, clear road to get to. That's something else that we see this in Bible history. And then the gates of these cities, they were never locked. They were never, ever locked. No one was ever locked out. Praise God for that. Then also, you know, along these roads from all the different places, there were also signs with the word miglat on them. And miglat in the Hebrew basically is the word for refuge. And so it wasn't that hard to find. As they would get on a road, they would see a signboard that pointed and said miglat, refuge. And this was all along the way. So it was easy for them to find a city of refuge. Can you see the heart of God? And I'm sure you're starting to see the type and shadow that it is for us as New Covenant believers in Jesus. It all spells out the gospel. It all spells out for us the journey to finding Jesus, to finding refuge in Jesus and staying in refuge in Jesus. It is pretty powerful, praise God. All right, so we've set the foundation today and join us next time because we are going to get more into how this now applies to us, how this relates to us. And what it says to us about the gospel and Jesus. Amen. Us in Jesus, that is. Praise God. Praise God. Awesome stuff. I get excited. You know that I'm, I'm more of a teacher than I am a preacher. And so I love teaching God's word. I love studying God's word. And I trust that you are blessed by this as well. Praise God. We trust that you are blessed by this message. For more information about our ministry or to make a donation to help us continue spreading the gospel, please visit our website at redemptioninjesus.com.